0: If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. episode, we enter the bright lights of Countdown and look at overnight success, jangly guitars, paisley shirts, and explore life deep without a meaning. The song, The Unguarded Moment by The Church.
1: I first saw it on Countdown and I was just mesmerised. It was a beautiful set with the um, stained glass window in the background. And the music was sort of church-like, so ethereal. The band were all very good-looking and the song was so melodic and the feelings that the song evoked, just a happier time for me, the jangling sort of 60s sound, took me Back to my childhood, they look like a cross between the monkeys and the
2: beetles. I'd already bought the single, Unguarded Moment, just never left the turntable, and I remember seeing them perform it on Countdown, and Steve Kilby at the end of it said, anyway, thanks to everybody who bought the
3: single, both of you. And uh, I was like, yeah, hey, I'm one of them, I'm one of
4: them. The first time I heard it must have been via Countdown, because in my mind, the sound and the visuals are linked, and that's why that song has such a big impact on me still. Countdown was like my gateway drug to the music world.
0: It was so commercial and poppy and mainstream in so many ways, but at the same time it
4: opened this door to show me this little secret world of what I came to know as the underground music scene and these local bands doing really cool stuff that I wasn't aware
0: of. I was already really into 60s music and so to see them in the Countdown studio with the haircuts and the shape of the guitars and the Paisley shirts, it was familiar and it was exciting, everything at once. That was Hericlia, Harris Donati's Stuart Little and Claire Halliday. Here's Steve Kilby from the church.
5: On the Friday night before Countdown, we were playing in the Governor's Pleasure to about seven people and they didn't really like it. And I think I knew them all anyway. And, and then on Sunday night we're on Countdown. On Monday night we did a gig in Melbourne at the Prospect Hill Hotel, and there was nine hundred people there, going nuts. I had thought about Countdown a lot, and I'd seen a lot of people get their one chance and blow it, and then I'd seen other people get on there and become instant stars. And I was very nervous we were going to fall into that first category because if you got on there once and. It it didn't take off. It was very doubtful you'd get on there again. It was pretty easy. We just stood there miming to our song. And, and then on Sunday, yeah, all hell broke loose and everything changed completely after that. I was watching it right from the start. Mm. And there's nothing like it now. It's hard to imagine that one TV show had so much fucking power.
0: Yeah.
5: Even getting on there was such a coup. Of course, the song wasn't a hit at that stage, so nobody knew how popular it was going to be. Our first single had disappeared without a trace, she never said, had come and gone with one bad review that said we were a Flowers wannabe band. Nobody played it, nobody talked about it, nothing, and just. Whew. So I was pretty much prepared for the second one to do that, and I was pleasantly surprised when it erupted the way it did. We were instantly playing big places and we were instant pop stars. We'd for a year and then bang.
4: Often
1: with bands I liked, by the time they made it on campdown, I was sort of over them. Yeah, <laughs> right. Whereas the church, I had never heard of because they were a Sydney band. And that's why they were just like, oh, wow, who's this? So there was definitely a Melbourne-Sydney divide for me anyway, because all my Favorite bands, Serious Young Insects, Little Heroes, The Models, a band called The Article. Yeah, they were all Melton bands. But The Church were the only Sydney bands that I liked. That was Harry
0: Here's Peter Coppers from The Church, who remembers another unguarded moment on Countdown.
6: Molly Milton jumped on stage once to accost Steve about why he resented popularity and commercialism and success. And Steve was a bit shocked and he didn't want to reply but he did and I thought he did a good job of saying he didn't want to play the game the way everyone else wanted to play and he did it in a non-clichéd way but at the same time Molly could tell that he was ungrateful for the success and opportunity that it afforded and wasn't being nasty about it. Molly loved the church actually. Maybe in his way, Molly, we thought Steve was not adjusting to success and I wanted to help him. And then he invited Steve to come host Countdown. But we were not the back-slapping Aussie boys kind of band. And a lot of people even thought in Australia that we were a British
0: band. For many fans, the highlight was seeing the church perform live and getting backstage. Here's Meg Simmons and Hericlia Herestinades. I was in year 11.
7: When I first saw the church at the San Miguel, a delightful Santa Fe-style building in Camaray in Sydney, I went with a bunch of friends from school. It was all about mohair jumpers and paisley shirts and stovepipe jeans and brothel creepers. And the air was always thick with cigarette smoke and the carpet was always sticky. Mossman Hotel, which was probably our local because it was close to school. but God knows how we ever got in (laughs) because we looked so underage but it was the time before poker machines. It was just bands, 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 and the ladies' lounge with a jukebox, which had the church on it.
1: The first time I saw them at a Monash Uni union night, and I was in my final year, and I went along with my sister and her friend Alex, who who took some photos for the band, and I think a couple of them might have been in one of the inner sleeves of the second album. And I couldn't believe it because every song was really good and there I was expecting them to be a one-hit wonder and they were just the opposite and the very next day I ran out and bought a Skins and Heart and I still remember playing it in my room on repeat. I always thought they should have brought out a live album because when you saw them live they were just on a different level to the recorded music. Once I discovered them I would go
8: to every gig in Melbourne five nights in a
1: row.
9: My friends and I travelled to the Bayview Tavern in Gladesville as I'd read a review of the band in one of the music papers. No more than 30 people there. I was immediately taken by the Paisley shirt that the lead guitarist and vocalist was wearing. I hadn't heard the church's music prior to this gig, and this was back early 80s, but I still remember the opening song, which sparked my interest right away. Is This Where You Live?, which I thought had a haunting sound. The song that really got me was "Unguarded Moment. I thought the lyrics were outstanding. Girls with rifles for minds and friends with cameras for eyes was lyrically brilliant. I really liked Steve Kilby's deep voice and the contrasting harmonies in the chorus. You can get lost in the song as if you were listening to a personal account from one of Steve's experiences. The music was a world away from the underground punk and new wave that we usually listen to.
0: That was Chris Clark. Here's Jen Jill Brown a journalist for RAM magazine.
8: They were really stiff on the stage in those days. They hardly moved. But they had this marvellous way with songs and they were a powerful group, a lot of energy and intensity to the way they played. They, they didn't have any rhythm and blues or any country or any roots music. In the solo, in the unguarded moment where Peter Coppus plays, it's a bit of a rock out a bit Chuck Berry, and you never hear him playing like that. After that period, the first album, it was very structured and it wasn't as much released and natural as the church became to their own genre that they created. It was psychedelic and came out of the birds, harmonies. The unguarded moment is... It's very dada, mysterious and fresh and startling in its metaphors and similes. Australian acts were very sweaty, loud and vigorous at that time. And they seem so restrained, but there's a lot of power in that restraint.
10: I went
7: with my friends to see Susie and the Banshees at the Capitol Theatre. And one of the main reasons I went was because on that tour, Rob Smith from The Cure was playing guitar and I really liked The Cure. And I met Richard Plug in the foyer. I was so excited and so starstruck. And I was a pretty tall girl and I always sidle up to people to see.
0: And, yeah, he was shorter than me, so there you go. <laughs> that was Meg Simmons. Here's Hericlea, who became a friend of the band and watched them develop through the decades.
1: I'd always have a bit of a chat with Marty. Peter would always tease me about something Steve would look over the enigmatic fashion, and Richard was very friendly. And then I moved to London in 1986. Marty sent me a postcard to say we're playing the marquee next month. And so I rocked up, and I couldn't get in. So I went around the back. waited in an alleyway and then Marty and Richard turned up and I got in with them. I was so excited because the audience were really into it in a way that I didn't feel the Australian audiences reacted well but the audience in London just it completely went off that night. You kind of get the
0: feeling that they were quite a wild band. Was it like that backstage? It was always the smell
1: of dope in the air. One time I saw them rock up before the show and they were all in the car smoking (laughs) as the window went down and it was like a Cheech and Chol movie. All the dope smoke (laughs) drifted out of the car. And look, I was such an innocent. One of those first gigs where I went backstage, Peter said to me, oh, did you get a hit? And I said, only off the music." It's just a pretty daggy thing to say. <laughs> there were girls around and there were wives around. I hesitate to say how many wives I've met over the years. I was there for the music. I got caught up in the personalities as well. Guys in bands can be very charming and a little bit of attention from them inflates I wouldn't say your ego makes you feel special when someone like that pays you some attention. In terms of getting involved with any of those sort of guys, you're just looking for heartache.
0: autobiography something quite peculiar Steve Kilby says he's reluctant to explain any of his lyrics and part of the Unguarded Moment's ongoing appeal is its refusal to be pinned down.
3: People interpret songs in a million different ways don't they? that's part of Stephen's gift is to, is to give people you know inklings of what the song is but you know that in an Unguarded moment, Moment's movie don't you I'm probably giving away his sequence now but he used to go through the, the TV guy and look at the midday movies and go, oh, in an unguarded moment, that's a good, I like that. that. Didn't actually have to watch the movie. I was
5: always collecting words and phrases, and I idolized guys in bands. I went to see the Easy Beats when I was 10 years old, and that really drove the whole thing into overdrive when I saw the girls screaming. There's just something that happens in a really great song that can sort of pull up all this emotion with very few words. And it's really just the slightest sort of allusion to something can bring all this emotion coming out, and nobody really knows how that works. Especially the guys who write it. You could sing anything in a song. I woke up this morning, shot my old lady. You can't write that in an article. But when a guy stands up and goes, I woke up this morning and my girlfriend left me, why does anyone care about that? Why can one person sing that and everybody in the room cares and somebody else can sing it? and it doesn't have any effect. I mean,
0: My theory is that narratives, they're stored in the body. And so things that happen to you as a child, you store them somewhere. And then when you're actually writing, they come out. They come out through
10: your body. Definitely.
5: Definitely, yeah. A lot of things I always tap into is evoking childhood feelings, and I can very easily do that. Looking at my own children, I was reconvinced all over. That childhood is a very important period. All your good ideas come from stuff in in your childhood.
0: That was Russell Kilby from The Crystal Set and Steve's younger brother, and Steve. Here's Peter Coppess on the musical beginnings of the song.
6: Unguarded moment. The jingle jangle on the guitar was a, a trick that I developed for putting two guitars in counterpoint harmony together. And ever since then, people have been trying to do that kind of trick, but they only have one guitar. Usually the two guitars when they combine, the way I combine them, you can hear a third one that's not even played, that's, you know, insinuated, which is the church sound. But the riff which Steve attributes to needle and pins and when she walked in the room as not being a particularly original riff, and a good version of that china, I would say. And I <clears throat> did an orchestral counterpoint and got Mighty to play the, the riff on the high strings just to to create an intro. I know that's not a 12-string guitar, but it sounds jingle-jangly, which is the reason Chris Gilby bought Marty a a Rickenbacker 12-string to complement that sound, and he used it on Almost With You. They're called arpeggios when you roll notes in a chord, but I was running against the arpeggios that Marty would do. I was running notes that were counterpoint melodies to the lead vocal, and Steve quite often counterpoints bass notes. His bass playing is very original because he's a melodic bass player in the... Ilk of um, Paul McCartney, a lot of bass players are songwriters because they understand the concept of running melodies like vocal harmonies, but in the bass range through the music. So that's a big part of the structure of the church sound and and Unguarded Moment probably exemplified that. I ended up covering Unguarded Moment. I may have played it more than they have. Um, It's on
1: stage every night for God knows how long, years. That was one song that was always played. I might be more adept at it than them. Unguarded
6: Moment was a slam dunk. It covered quite a few bases.
1: Without being pretentious, without being too pub-rocky, without being never-ending guitar solos that just won't finish. And the drumming's fantastic. On the Brisbane leg of um, the Queensland leg
6: JFK and the Cuban Crisis at
8: that stage
6: and doing mostly originals but with few beloved covers.
0: That Um, must have been so exciting after you covering uh, that song.
6: Yeah, and I don't think I ever toppled Steve or any of the guys in the band. It was very proud for me to be able to support them.
0: That was Greg Paul from JFK and the Cuban Crisis. Steve Kilby is notoriously reluctant to talk about his hit songs, but has mellowed in the past couple of years, performing them live and doing acoustic versions. So has anyone ever done a cover version of Unguarded Moment that you've loved?
5: Every now and then someone goes, oh, some young girl's done Unguarded Moment on Triple J. I don't know what you'd have to do to make me like it. I'm not interested in it. It's funny, you think I would be. It's so long ago, I've still written so many songs, I've played so many shows, I've gone deaf, I've got five daughters, I've lived on four different continents, I've been through heroin addiction, I've taken fucking ayahuasca, and I've been up and I've been down, I've been rich and I've been poor, I was young, now I'm old. a moment just seems like such a dismal, boring thing to me really does. You never
0: liked it at the time. No,
5: it took three <laughs> minutes to write. It was written in three minutes wow. and the band liked it and the managers liked it and then the audience liked it, but I was always like, ah.
0: So it says everywhere that he co-wrote that song with... Um, my
5: Girlfriend. She used to be my girlfriend in Baby
6: Grant and uh, Steve never had a girlfriend that we ever saw, but then... When I left Baby Grant, she went up to Sydney to do nursing. Steve moved into my room with my best friend. And and then when I came back from Melbourne, Steve and Michelle had moved into an apartment together and got married. And then they moved up to Sydney. They used to do the markets, doing punk t-shirts. She's a fashion designer. She actually created the Dickensian jacket that I wore on the cover of Gold Afternoon Fix. She sang the backing vocals on It's No Reason that beautiful, poignant voice in the chorus is her. we'd call her a muse, she was very very uh, strong woman
8: mm.
6: and creative and she still was a good friend. I wasn't in love with her. Steve said she wasn't in love with me and she always fancied Steve, but I suppose that's their <laughs> business. You know, Steve and I started the church. I think there might have been some funny rivalry there because the show and I are still very good friends to this day and uh, she still comes and visits the band. But she said that Steve was writing another song when she walked in the room and she got the keyboard and said, oh, <laughs> she's pretty irreverent too, they're perfect for each other. She said, that's crap. Let's try something else. And she started playing the keyboard, she said, and came up with an unguarded moment together. I always said to Steve, if you're going to have unguarded moments, a big hit, Under the Milky Way is a big hit. You should write another song with a current girlfriend, starting with the um, un, and we might have another hit. <laughs> so he wrote. You see, he wrote "Unified Field" on one of the later albums. He didn't write it with his girlfriend, so it didn't count. Yeah. He wrote it "Under the Milky Way" with the mother of his children, right? But Unguarded a moment. When Ruby Fields did her version of it, I thought, "Wow, it's a, a very feminine song." Which is mm-hmm. ironic for Steve. You wouldn't think he had a feminine side, unless it's just the the vulnerability of perceived. This gets a bit deep and philosophical there, because I know you know women don't have to be vulnerable necessarily, but it seemed to be a Suited a, wim- a woman's perspective, as do a lot of songs, you know, that are written by men.
8: When I heard Ruby Field's cover in Like a Version, it revealed a lot about the song to me. And I thought, this sounds like a song written by somebody who's been really severely bullied at school. There's kind of words in there that seem to suggest, you know, verse by verse, that the person who's under attack by secretive forces and yet they're surviving. And I wondered if, because Steve Kilby had been an English boy in an Australian school in Canberra, like the other English kids I'd known he'd been picked on in school. And because of his sharp wit and his charm and his ability to be a bit of a magician with words, he'd managed to... Talk his way out of those situations and get people on the side.
0: That was Peter Coppers and Jen Jewel Brown.
8: Interesting trajectory to be able to write something in three minutes, and then it becomes the thing
0: that changes your whole career.
5: All my songs take three minutes. They all take as long as it takes to actually play on. I just will pick up the guitar and go. So hard, ding, 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 finding it. so bang. It was so all over it's just out. an
0: absolute flow of consciousness.
5: All yeah, cool. even more than then. I'm plugged into something. I can write songs whenever I like. But that's just because I've always done it. I've probably written more songs than almost anybody else in this whole world. I've written so many fucking songs. And especially in the 80s, I used to have a little gang of people who sit there and watch me write my next song. They'd come around my house and then I'd go in my studio and there'd be four guys sitting there watching me do it. It was sort of a sport to me because after banging my head for so long, when I suddenly got it right, I was able to write a good song every time.
0: How do you know out of all of those hundreds of, hundreds of songs, which ones are going to be the ones that you want to play or keep playing?
5: Every now and then you'd write a, a really amazing one that you, you wanted to do and that'd be the one you'd take into the band and go, we really have to do this one and not take no for an answer. So in a week I might write ten good songs, but one of those good songs would be really good
0: you just knew instinctively which one was
5: the one. Usually, but with Unguarded Moment, I didn't. So every now and then, I didn't know Under the Milky Way was so good until everybody told me it was. I thought it was just another song I'd sort of banged out that was destined to sit on a cassette in a drawer. Songwriting, it was my vocation. Like other people would be a missionary. I was born to be a songwriter and was always working on it, always thinking about it. I didn't want my music to be about drinking beer and driving cars or being a working class man. This is a quote I often quote by Andre Breton. I thought that beauty should be convulsive or not at all. I wanted something marvellous to happen. I wanted some otherworldly, magical, spiritual, religious... I wanted something more out of my music than Saturday Night's All Right for fighting.
6: When I got the publishing deal for the church with Chris Gilby, when we did the arrangement for Unguarded Moment and wrote The Middle Eight, he wouldn't give me a songwriting credit for it. And I said, but I wrote that bit. If that's played in a film, they're going to pay you instead of me. And I wrote that bit. And he said, that's never going to happen. I was watching, looking for Ali Brandy at the film festival in Sydney once. And suddenly she goes around to her father's place, spoiler alert, and pulls out the a record from his collection with Sydney Harbour Bridge in the background, her favourite song in his collection, and it's the Unguarded moment, except it starts with the middle eight section that I wrote, I went, what the fuck, how's that?
0: Peter and Steve met in Canberra before escaping, like many others. To Sydney.
2: It was a great place to grow up as a kid. I loved it. When I hit adolescence, it wasn't so good. It was kind of awful, really. It just seemed like you were coming into your adult consciousness in an empty wasteland of hot in summer, cold in winter. And most people I know left late 70s. There's really nothing much to do except hang around shopping centers in ugly boots.
3: It was incredibly suburban and parochial and there was one music shop called Impact Records where you could get imports. Everyone from every different scene would go to send on this one record shop and there's no trains, you've got to catch buses and they stop at 11 o'clock at night so there was a lot of walking stupidly long distances to get home or until you got a car. We used to play this game where we'd see how long we could think that there'd been a nuclear radiation attack and that everyone was dead except for us. And in Canberra, you can do it for 15, 20 minutes, drive along these huge six-lane highways. Back in the day, we could drive along pretending there was, that you were the only people alive, especially at 2 o'clock in the morning.
0: That was Greg Appel and Russell Kilby. Here's Peter Coppas. I thought it was
6: culturally stimulating. Yeah, it was a blank canvas. Everywhere in the world looks like Canberra now. Everywhere has got suburbs with windy roads that are separated from other suburbs, so you can't take shortcuts through them and have to stay on main roads, arterial roads. That was invented in Canberra. It was a Presbyterian or well, church hall. So well, I saw Steve and, and he was playing bass at a band called Beyond Beavers. And they had two drummers because they invited my mate as a drummer without telling the other guy who was fired. So, Steve started singing and playing bass, and the guitarist and uh, drummer were left. And then they heard me do a drum solo on my drummer's drum kit once, which I'm trying to do sometimes because I love playing drums. And uh, so they invited me to be the second drummer because they thought that was cool, like a glam rock band. And they, they had a bit of an Alice Cooper thing. He couldn't play guitar, but he was writing songs on his bass guitar. So I thought that was um, pretty good that he was an original writer. So I joined on drums and the other drummer was my mate. So we loved playing together and and, uh, then they kicked out the guitarist and got me to play guitar and Steve just took over singing and uh, he'd write the songs on one string on his bass guitar show and we'd formulate them into punk, glam rock kind of songs and he wrote lyrics which were all sexual allegories. Stephen spent a lot of time in his
3: bedroom with a four-track, and he made lots of demos before he had the church. For quite a while in Canberra, he was a, a, a guy who worked in the public service and recorded in his room, and I was the only one that actually listened to his stuff and thought it was any good.
0: That was Russell Kilby, and his Stuart Coop, a journalist and later band manager, who became an important part of the thriving Sydney music scene.
5: Park Rock was the first music revolution that coincided with me being old enough to really embrace it. So I felt part of a gang. We knew the bands, no one had any ears and graces. Steve Kilby would come around to my house and pick me up and drive me to church gigs. They were as kind of go, what the fuck's going on here as was everybody else? So they were riding this crest, you know, and everyone in the audience felt part of it. You know, we were hearing the songs that the Sunny Boys or the Go-Betweens or the Church or Ice House, as they were writing them, quite often for the first time they were played in public. There was not the artificial or, or constructed barriers that would come later when they became pop stars. You know, I
3: think I saw the very first church gig they ever played, which was up in Kings Cross. And that was the gig that Marty came and saw the band and then afterwards they said, you should join and they hadn't actually even heard him play, they just thought he looked cool so um, I moved to Sydney and I was working in this horrible insurance company and one day I just went, I'm sick of this and quit and Stephen said you should be our guitar roadie and so I went on the road with the church when of Skins and Heart had just been released the the rock scene was a tough place once you left a few inner city venues, it was Beer barns and the church, they're a bit, I guess, puffy, but acceptable only just. And they, they usually sort of won over the crowd a bit, you know, but even though you had been on countdown, there's still people yelling out, "Place and barnsy There was women that it, it, it seems quite a masculine kind of pub rock scene, definitely out in the suburbs. I guess I was a wimpy guy and it seemed quite scary a lot of the time, but yeah. working for them. It was the surfy guys warm to them first. The the blue collar guys were a bit suspicious. It was the harsh life, the amount of physical work and the amount of driving you had to do to keep the show on the road, and and the amount of like speed that everyone was taking, pretty much worn out after about six or seven weeks. And then that's I can't that's it. I've had enough. And I thought I'd, I was worth on my own band. The band weren't taking speed. The roadies were taking speed. The band, the band was stoned off their gourd the whole time, which is probably part of the reason why it's hard to relate to a crowd. It's fun to play stoned, but your stagecraft deteriorates. So, yeah, probably a lesson there. I don't think it affects your, your playing. It just affects your ability to communicate with the audience. The band suffered because he was sort of introverted and non-communicative, taciturn and... Confronted by the rough and tumble of the pub rock scene. It was like being a carny. You had characters like Michael Chubb and his crew at that stage anyway. I'm sure it's different now, but they knew what to do if he went to jail, let's put it that way. The the church were one of the bands who had a road manager who kept losing the money all the time. Like, Mm. he was the cocaine addict, I think. The briefcase kept getting stolen because bands used get paid in cash in those days. The, the pub would just get the money out of the space and put it into a briefcase at the end of the gig. Wow. So you're often driving around with thousands of dollars. The road manager was anyway, and that, that must have been quite a temptation. The opportunities for
5: graft are
3: also endless and debauchery.
0: That was Russell. Here's Steve and Peter.
5: Seemed like it was this kind of Buddhist puzzle. You can't get a gig till you've got a record out, and you can't get a record out until you've done a gig. When we got, had the record company and publishing company, we, we could get gigs and we were playing every night of the week. We were opening for Chisel and My Sex and Mentals and we were playing in all of these pubs around sydney where nobody really liked us before countdown we weren't embraced anywhere after countdown we were embraced in melbourne and sydney in the inner city people loved us but you go out in the suburbs we're very snooty and snobby always acting like we we're too good to be here why should we fucking be here like we're the hippest band in the world and i think Some people found that attractive and a lot of the bogany types probably didn't really think that was very cruel. I don't really like Aussie pub rock. I don't really like ACDC. Suddenly we were lumped in in with it. We didn't really fit the mold. It seems so important then. It doesn't now. It's like, what does it matter? You're lucky to have an audience. I was English and I wanted to be in England and I thought the English would really understand what I'm doing. We saw ourselves as a European band who was accidentally stuck in Sydney. The only Australian band I really ever liked at the time was Flowers and Icehouse. I really thought Ivor Davies was pretty cool. On any given night, there were 30 or 40 gigs in Sydney. Each of them could have a thousand people there. I mean, the venues were stuffed and you could play in Sydney for three weeks Never played the same venue twice. There were so many fucking venues. Where have they all gone? The Comb and Cutter, and all those gigs in Punch Bowl and the Manly Vale, and what the one that Midnight all used to play at, the Royal Antler, and there was the Civic, and the Metro. That's still there. The Tivoli, the Stage Door Tavern, French's, the Trade Union Club. It seemed to matter, it was vital. Peter Coppers had a theory that rock and roll was too random, that you would turn up and the band might be sounding bad or you might be standing in a bad part of the room or you might get hustle. And he theorised that when electronic music came along you always knew what you were getting. The guy playing the record would always sound the same whereas rock and roll was more random.
0: Don't you think that the joy of live music is the randomness of it? That's why you want to go to a live gig, I, you don't I, want it to Yeah,
5: be. yeah, yes. And but that's why
0: people remember the energy of that time.
5: Yeah, but I guess if you're a young, sturdy, tough guy, that's all right. But if you're sort of more fragile, like me, I'd hate to be in an audience crushed, screaming, writhing, pushing and shoving. I don't want to be in that. If I go and see music, I want to sit in a theatre Mm-hmm. How are you going, darling? It's a good show, isn't it? I don't want to be, ah! I don't sort of want that. In fact, it scared me to look what was going on in the audience. It was violent, and there was a lot of drinking, the carpets that were sticky, people vomiting and smoking and fighting. I was happy to be on stage, but it wouldn't have caught me in an audience watching that in those conditions.
6: We called ourselves a church to piss off religion. We all thought, gee, it's like a collective noun. It's better than the police. And they were successful. And then we didn't realise that people thought we were either a heavy metal band or a Christian band. But Chris Gilby signed up the saints, the church, and the bishops. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, there's a band called the bishops. And they got the the best mixing engineer in the world, Bob Clearmountain, who'd just become famous for doing... um, Flesh and Blood by Roxy Music. So he mixed our first album, and everyone in Australia was outraged that the best mixing guy in the world is doing Bruce Springsteen and Pretenders and always forget his name, don't know, Brian Adams.
8: And, oh, yeah. Uh, Brian. Yeah, so, yeah.
6: <laughs> yeah, so he mixed our first album, and it was the most perfect balance of what I felt so was arrangement.
0: You're an unknown band in Australia. Why did he decide to, to do that album?
6: Well, he was paid for it, but he respected the band enough to come out to produce our second album, so he liked the music. When he installed himself in the studio in Sydney, 301 Castle Ray Street, to record, suddenly everybody in Australia wanted to come and check out the see if they wanted to record there, but they were just spying on him, a parade of them all for a, a month looking at these little white speakers that were on the desk. And now every studio in the world pretty much has these white, cone black box speakers that he used with cleaning tissues that they used to clean the heads on the tape machines that he'd stick over the tweeters. There was no bass in the speakers. They're terrible. I said to Bob, why do you use such terrible sounding speakers? Everyone hates the sound of them. He said, if it sounds good on there, it'll sound good on everything.
10: I was a huge fan of 60s guitar bands. And among the first bands I was involved in bringing to Capitol Records on a domestic side in the United States were people like The Knack, who had My Sharona, The Motels, who had Total Control, which was a big hit in Australia. Weird Al Yankovic, he's uh, maybe bigger than ever. I had an opportunity to be the A&R guy for Kraftwerk. We were just getting started with bands like Duran Duran. I was really excited about the unguarded moment from the first time I heard it. To me, it's an almost perfect tune. Steve's vocal, the lyrics, the instrumentation, that guitar solo in the middle. Capitol Records back then was an extremely radio-oriented label. And while I really liked the whole church album... I needed that song that I thought could put them over the top, that our radio promotion team could really get behind. I had a planned business trip to Australia in 1981, and part of that trip was meeting with Steve Kilby and Michael Chugg. I was already very interested in having the Church album come out on Capitol in America, one afternoon, I went to the studio, I watched them record, and then the next morning, I had a breakfast in the King's Cross area with Michael and Steve. There was a legendary music hotel back in those days, the Siebel Townhouse, and one of Steve's major questions of me was, hey, Bruce, you know, we're not the most accessible band in the world. Are capital going to stick with us for the long term? And, of course, I had already discussed this situation with higher-ups at Capitol, and I was able to tell Steve that I was guaranteeing them two albums. Of Skins and Heart didn't do well in America. The band gave us the Blurred Crusade. I passed it around to key people at Capitol, and the excitement wasn't there. It was probably too complex for the radio-oriented label that we were at that point in time. They sent us a few more tracks, but our promotion team wasn't really feeling them. And then what turned out to be one of the darkest moments in my business career, I was ordered to drop the band. And I said, I can't drop the band with your backing, I've promised them two albums on Capitol. Their reply was, Bruce, you've got to drop the band. There's simply no enthusiasm for them here at the label. So I got on the phone with Michael Chug and told him that it just wasn't going to work out any longer. And he actually took it pretty well. I didn't take it very well. I felt absolutely horrible about it for years and years. Matter of fact, I still feel badly about it because it made a liar out of me. And I believe no matter what the business is, we need to be people of our word. Things actually worked out for the best, though, for the band. They went on to Arista Records. They had great success there. Under the Milky Way tonight, to me, in a lot of ways, sounded like the unguarded moment.
0: That was Bruce Ravid. He's Russell Kilby.
3: I was there when Under the Milky Way was written. That was up at my mum's place. And he had this old piano and started knocking out these chords and his other like, long-term partner Colin Janssen who lives in Sweden, she definitely contributed to that writing of that
0: song. Was it like the musical side or lyrics or both? And both, yeah. Yeah, right.
3: Well, I think that the whole Under the Milky Way thing was, because the stars were really amazing out there on the lake. Another lived on this beautiful bit of the New South Wales near Foster and there was not much light pollution so there was lots of stars.
0: For Bernadette Keyes, who went on to make a short film Comeback with Steve Kilby, it was his lyrics and poetry that excited her as a teenager.
4: They opened this mythological door to me that there was more to life. There was imagination, there were dreamings, there was mythology, there was spells, there was energy, there was unseen forces. That was very appealing to my creative and imaginative nature as a teenager. The lyrics in the church songs are poetry and they're not she loves me, no, no, no. They're kind of obtuse, metaphoric, alliteration. I used to pore over the lyrics as well and, and try and work them out. And I was very thrilled when I found out that Steve had published his poems. I remember speaking with Amanda Kramer from The Psychedelic Furs and she'd commented that she has never seen anybody write lyrics as fast as Steve Kilby. Ideas come to him so quick. There's so much um, complexity to the church music, so much beauty in it, there's spaces, there's all different sounds. It's like some of the songs take you into those other lands and another universe.
5: The statue's unseeing eyes unfold emptiness. Go deeper, invoke artifice and persuasion. Ah, the night of bribes crush the delirious marble ground up and given over to the weakness of flesh. Enchanters, let's have your firstborn. Let his cries ring on in this silence of stone. Bring on the nectars and the marvelous dead. Show us, your pretty wives, how we fall from these exposures. Cruel captains, take to the churned seas. Scour the world for the arcane feet of my lady. Further you push, the green cells and maps of India. What spice is this that makes us dreams? Horses, owls and hollow pipes, the darts of earth. Music, we must have music, we must dance and writhe while the chisel subtracts, subtracts.
8: In terms of his output, he's that shark who can't sleep. He just constantly works. It's not even work, I suppose. It's like he eats, breathes and sleeps, making music and writing songs. He's a very big man of action and he's a fascinating creature certainly that core of churches that that I knew back then were very much of the alternative mindset and at one stage at mushroom our PR queen Sue McCauley had scored them the front page of Rolling Stone in Australia and they returned it down it broke her heart why would they have done that suspicion of fame, suspicion of success. The Wild Brumbies, they can't be tamed. But Steve, with his famous speech to the ARIA Awards, where he embraced the whole industry, he has become very hail fellow well-met. He's, he's become warm, humanitarian.
1: <laughs>
8: yes. And yes. Uh, it's always a bit arch with him, so he sends up himself as well as these ideas at the same time as being them, so yeah
6: most creative people like Mozart they're like child spirits and they're quite tactless and they think it's honesty and it is but people think if you're going to be a mature adult you should be able to lie better than that <laughs> because mm. we've lacked a lot of support because of his tactlessness not meaning to be unkind he just said things that put journalists and and music industry off like we were in America doing a tour there in more recent times where we had a whole lot of radio stations interviews to do during that tour. And the very first one, they kept asking him about under the Milky Way because it was like a commercial station. And they thought that's what their uh, audience wanted to hear. And he started getting petulant and grumpy and refused to answer the questions. And the guy got really annoyed with him and started, you know, becoming, you know, a bit abusive towards him and then complained to the uh, record company and they cancelled every single radio interview for the rest of the tour.
0: That was jen Jewel Brown and Peter Coppers. Here's Steve.
5: There was a car I always used to insist on, a Ford... I forget what it's called now. The Galaxy? Hmm? Was the
6: Galaxy?
5: No, it wasn't a Galaxy. There was a Fairlane yeah. and then there was a, like an a LTD, LTD. 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 And I used to turn up and the, the promoter go, oh, yeah, I've got you a, a fair lane. I go, oh, I'm not driving in a fair lane. I want an LTD. I became really Why? focused. huh Just Why? to fucking, because after, after, so I started my quest for musical domination at age 16 when I got my first bass and it took me to 25, 26 to get anywhere and that was 10 years of, being nobody and slugging it out and people saying, oh, you're no good and that's not gonna happen. And when I became a star, I became a real little rat bag. I sort of wanted to enjoy all the things I thought, like insisting on this sort of car. And, uh, and the guy go, oh, could I get you Johnny Walker Red, I'm uh, not oh, going on? I don't drink Red Label, I drink Black Label. Now I'm so old, it's silly looking back on it, but it sort of amused me.
0: Here's Greg Appel from The Lighthouse Keepers.
5: i have been writing this musical
2: for 20 years about a bunch of old rockers who'd ended up in a band park. John Paul Young agreed to do it. He played like an alternative version of himself where he's a bit more of a hardcore rock pig. The character Steve played had... Part of his thing was a permanent erection. I don't know where that attribute came from, but he was like a hippie that had a continual succession of uh, hippie girlfriends, one of those 60s guys that just never stopped and kept spouting philosophy. So did
0: you write the character or did he write the character?
2: Oh, no, I wrote the character. (laughs) um,
0: He embodied the character, right?
2: It it came to casting it, and at this this point in my mind, his whole image was a serious, po-faced kind of musician. That's all you ever... Heard from him was quite serious, esoteric stuff. I had a interesting phone call with him, and then he started to make a few jokes, and I realised he was quite a funny guy. And we got to the point about the erection, and he said, "I'm not going to walk around with my cock hanging out or show." And it was like, "Uh, "Don't worry, Steve. It's just an idea. We'll do it with special effects, some flashing lights, or something like that." And look, he was so good in that role. It was a difficult role. He made it funny. Um, It was the perfect character for him and the more I got to know him, the more I thought, well, that is you. He's like a child of the 60s that's just never stopped, but he's lived a life. He's like a real rock star and good to work with, pretty unpredictable. he, He was around 60 and still taking a lot of drugs. So we'd be rehearsing and John... Paul Young, he was very much like, we work hard, if you're going to drink and do anything, you do it after the show, but we're going to rehearse properly, and the show must go on, this is serious, everyone's got to work together. Steve was the opposite. There's always some trauma when he came to rehearsal, and you get to the night where you actually put the show on, he'd come late, he'd look pretty... There was often a story about someone being in jail, and he's quite active life outside what we're doing um, and you think like, is he going to be able to do this? And he'd puff on joint just before the show. The last thing he would do, but he did it to relax. He'd get up there and he'd remember every line. I'd always say to him, like, you could do a superannuation ad, Steve. It's amazing what you can do at your age. Like he'd be jumping around on stage. He didn't like that, but he was impressive.
5: My whole confusion culminated with 10 years of heroin addiction. I was so like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'll start shooting heroin instead. And then in the year 1999, 2000, I stopped being a junkie. I turned into me now, who's sort of grateful and happy. And I guess I had to go through all that turmoil and stupidity to arrive at where I am. Just because you can write songs, it doesn't mean you know how to get along well with people. And I was always fighting with those other guys in the band. There was so much envy and jealousy and bitching and stuff happening between all of us. It was a struggle all the time. I couldn't sit back and go, wow, enjoy it. In the mixture, you're probably better off not to be such a talented person, but have loads of ambition and self-belief. And I found very early on, if you went on stage and acted like you were something special, People would believe it. If you go and go, oh, we've got a song now, it's an original, I oh, hope you all like it. And I could see that didn't really work for me. I amped it up the other way. I'm a sort of aloof and frosty and oh, I'm too good to be here. Uh, you're a pack of imbeciles. Nonetheless, I'm gonna lay my music on you and then sort of sneer and smirk my way through this gig and fuck off in my Ford LTD.
0: You- what an
5: unpleasant person I'm turning out to be in this interview. <laughs> a bastard.
0: Maybe a fascinating
5: person. The magic is fading from this world. Logic and rules replace the spells. The giants are gone. The Elohim no longer look over me and I feel the metallic coldness in the breath of my children. I sit in bed and eat melted chocolate as the sun goes down in the east. The earth is thirsty for love, but our greedy fingers bruise her soft skin. Our whispers are abrasive. Noise drowns sound.
0: That was Steve reading from Earthed, his book of poetry. From the beginning, the Almost a Mirror podcast has been about an ever-expanding series of connections, from Nick Cave to David McComb to Chris Bailey to Tracy Pugh, from Steve Kilby to Grant McLennan to Amanda Brown, our latest collaborator, who takes the unguarded moment into lush new terrain. You're here, I can feel it. I get lost up and down the escalators, walking through rooms of Japanese ceramics and contemporary Australian design. I could ask for directions. I see a sea of grey hair in a dim room and imagine you there. Your work is hidden as if the gallery is afraid of people seeing it. It's like a cemetery here. The paintings and photos, tombstones for artists mostly dead. And others. I take a seat near the back in case I need to make a quick exit. You're sitting in the front row. The black suit, the way you stay straight, the ungiving back. You never move your head, don't bother looking around. There's a point where you've seen it all before. You take your hat off and suddenly the room is resurrected, filled with young people. It's packed and they're noisy and they have to stand up because there are no seats left. Your hair is still the same length, but you've struggled to put it into a ponytail. I stand up and take a Polaroid of the back of your head. I wish I could show it to Jimmy. It would have made him laugh. The curator does an introduction and asks one question and you are off, standing at the lectern. You talk about your subjects and the way they move you. The girl next to me records you on her phone, furtive. You move your hand like a wave caressing the curves of a body you talk about love and intimacy as you talk your eyes roam i keep my face up look straight don't smile but your eyes move on to another person in the room there's nothing not a glimmer you talk about empowerment and composition the sound of your voice The same measured and rehearsed calm of a lecture you've delivered many times before. Your words just one long stream that take me to languid afternoons in the studio. To the dirty junkyard of a ballroom. You talk about where we begin and where we end. But when you start to talk about beauty, I get up and walk. Past your latest boys and girls, with their lost faces and thin porcelain skin so transparent I can see the veins blue like cracks about to break them open
8: so hard finding inspiration I knew you'd find me crying tell those girls with rifles for mine that they're jokes
0: Crowds flutter around me in the photographs, drawn to slivers of light. My eyes are black, my lips are black. I've done a couple of loops, but keep returning to the same images, lingering with longing. Your bones poke out, your collarbone, your beautiful mouth, the most luscious thing. I don't stand too close, but I'd like to. In this public space, I'm suddenly aware of what others will think of me, that they may be watching me, watching us, watching you, making connections. You take the cord in your mouth, in your teeth. It's not that the girl is naked so much, but that she appears asleep, her body surrendered to the dark. This time it's me perched above, intruding on the girl's dreams as she lies with abandon, knees apart. The fall, falling in love, falling leaves, falling asleep, all the things we loved. I can feel the heat rising off the girl's body as she throws off the covers and moves on top of them, turning her head backwards and forwards to find the coolness, the sweet spot, waiting for the cool change, letting the dark air touch our skin, the awkwardness, thrill of learning about our new bodies. As I watch this girl in the art gallery, my body responds to the girls and I'm reluctant to leave her that lusciousness of complete letting go. Ankle bracelets bought at markets, dry summer nights in the bungalow, too lazy, too tired, too hot to put on the doona cover before falling into bed. stand in front of the photo I don't want to look at the girl I want to be the girl caught up in the process of becoming running away to Melbourne and dangling our legs over the overpass trolling for gruff billy goats and enjoying the danger of watching cars below lying on the banks of the Yarra kissing you in the cold jeans ripped and new romantic in every sense but coming of age doesn't stop, it just keeps coming. I move on to the ballroom, the blood and mud. I look for you, but you're still missing, just your dirty feet pointing to the sky. I search in my bag for the cool slime of Polaroid. I talk back. To the man wearing a hat in the shadows. To the man hurting a soft boy in his arms. I sticky tape my Polaroid from the party over the top of Dodge's photograph. I find the playlist on my phone and set up the speaker. The opening synth beat of change in mood fills the gallery. I return to the image of the girl sleeping. I take my boots off and my dress and the rest of my layers. I sit naked beneath the portrait and lie back against the cool floor. I spread my legs and lift my head so it's at just the right angle. I am me and I am not me. My body is pale and clear and is what it is. I look out at the gathering crowd. I am almost a mirror. That was now this is then. I make my own fantasy. I count to ten.
8: So deep, deep without a meaning. I knew you'd find me leaving. Tell those friends with cameras for lies. they
0: That was the Unguarded Moment chapter from my novel Almost a Mirror, which is published by Transit Lounge. The book is structured as a mixtape of 80s music, with each chapter revolving around a song. Almost a Mirror is available at all bookstores and as an e-book too. Our version of the Unguarded Moment in this episode features vocals by Amanda Brown and was produced by Richard Andrew. Head to Bandcamp to hear the single, which was produced by Tony Buchan, with the guitars by Amanda Brown and Richard Andrew, Omnicord by Amanda Brown, bass by Tony Buchan, and drums by Richard Andrew. I've also been developing a festival show with Inga Lillistrom and Zoe Barry that will premiere at the Headland Writers Festival in Tathra on 20th and 21st of May. It features an incredible ensemble of musicians, including Angie Hart, Inga, Michael Simic, Mick Mooney, and Heath Cullen, Coming up in the next episode, we enter the sweaty pub scene of Sydney and meet a power pop band led by two teenage brothers from Kingscliff with a precocious talent for writing music. The song, Alone With You by the Sunny Boys. The Almost A Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Krauth, with sound design and mixing by Jed Palmer. Thanks to Jason Walker for tech support too. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. Thanks to the Australian Music Vault at Arts Centre Melbourne and punkjourney.com for helping so much with research. The theme song is written by Michael Simic and produced by Michael Mooney with vocals by La Trouble, a.k.a. Michael Mooney and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye.